Where am I going? What is the purpose of my life? Will I ever discover who I am? Welcome to Sit at My Table. So what I've been contemplating and what I've just, I don't know, just the kind of thoughts that are on my mind today and what I'm trying to wrap my head around is uh, I think that we often overlook the very simple things in front of us. So the best I can describe it is that there's a projector and we're looking at what the projector is projecting rather than at the projector itself. But if you want to understand the nature of what's occurring, if you want to understand what is actually happening behind the scenes, uh, the thing about a projector is it can project something that has absolutely nothing to do with itself, right? And so when we want to see the inner workings that lay behind um, an apparent or an apparently perceived reality, we have to take a step back from what we see and into the thing that is projecting what we see, what is creating this image, right? So in analysis of the, a lot of people, we make the mistake as humans in assuming that in looking at the projection, we can gain some sort of clarity about what is projecting. And it's, that's a fallacy, right? I mean, look around, like what you see has nothing necessarily to do with what's in, right? With what's occurring inside the projector, the whole purpose of the projection is to create some sort of story or message or, you know, what it is ultimately illusion. It has nothing to do with the projector. That is life. And that's what we mistake, right? So the complicated issues that we deal with are not actually complicated. It's simply behavior. It's simply choice. It's simply... Um, what we decide to do, our endeavors, right? That is not where the problem is occurring. That is not where understanding is going to take place. When we ask the question, who am I? We have to transcend the projection. We have to transcend sight and what we see, this, this, uh, um, this kind of reality that we take for granted. It is up to us to no longer take that perception for granted. And we have to go into the very thing that is creating the perception. Now it starts with a look inward and at our thoughts. But what you'll find is that thought, thought is uh, not, thought is not the end. Thought is still a product of the machine that is behind it. 
and I don't like to use the word machine because truly it's an energy. But for the sake of the metaphor and for the point, I guess I will use that term. But essentially, what, we're what we are required to do in order to understand our identity is to step back. Uh, you may have heard this referred to as entering the void, per se, um, the darkness, silence, um, you know, the desert, whatever it may be, but it's a separation from the senses. And when we separate from the senses, especially in the case of psychedelics or deep meditation or near-death experience, um, these sorts of things, we, we tend to, as humans, almost unanimously come back with a changed perspective, a new outlook on the same view or the same reality um, that we perceived only moments ago. And so the key to understanding identity is taking a step back from what we see and what we experience so that we can encounter the thing that creates the experience. Now, the vehicle that uh, we use for this uh, endeavor, the, the one that I particularly want to touch on is metaphor and symbology and the fallacy that Western society is caught up in in regards to these things. Now, we have a tendency to take symbols and metaphors literally, especially in the case of religion. Uh, in the case of another big one we see is the case of uh, gender, sexuality, uh, many different facets. But what's actually occurring, th these vehicles of metaphor and symbology are uh, the only way that we can transcend through perception. The, think of it as a layered cake, right? So the level of thought that you just naturally exist in, apart from any awakening or separation or insight, is one layer, the base layer. But you can go through these layers to comprehend things uh, more in depth, to get a bigger perspective. Think of it as uh, climbing floors on a building to look out over the city. At the top floor, you're going to get a better idea of the city in its entirety, though detail may be lacking. Maybe you can't see what's occurring on the streets, and, and this is where we have a tendency to get out of touch. But essentially what metaphor is, is a timeless language. The, the first thing that we as humans are going to have to get used to is transcending time in our minds, in our analysis, in our perspective. We have to get out of this rut of thinking that this moment is somehow more important than the next moment. That somehow our life is um, so determinately tied to 
the 80 so you know 80 or so years that we get to walk this earth but metaphor is intended and symbology itself it's it's honestly a gift from god because what it does is it transcends time it's timeless because it doesn't literally apply to the situation perspective or circumstance that one um, is participating in at any given moment. It simply takes the symbols of an era and applies them in a way that transcends uh, one's initial comprehension of them. So, when we take cultural symbols, for instance, in the Bible, Jesus used... Uh, the symbols of shepherding and these sorts of things, you know, a tree and its fruit. We always look at them and we understand that they're parables, right? And so we say, well, he's talking about something spiritual. But then we take spiritual truths and use the same logic um, that we would, would usually and, and typically use on very normal and very low, low-leveled um, logic. Uh, I didn't say that very clearly, but I think you understand what I'm saying. In order to understand a parable or a metaphor, one cannot use the same logic, um, the same face value of the symbols which make up the metaphor. One has to dive deeper or higher, however you want to see it. Those obviously are also metaphors. So, when we tackle something like symbology in a metaphor, we have to get to know the symbols themselves. And we have to take those symbols apart. We have to dissect them. We have to get to know what is behind that symbol. What is, what is uh, the spiritual truth in a sheep? What is the spiritual truth found in a vine and its branches? What is the, sim the spiritual truth found in armor, in the fruits of the Spirit? What is behind that logic? What is the transcendent logic? And so, when we when we begin to tackle that, it's very difficult because until we learn to separate from uh, our current perspective, uh, we are never going to be able to change how we perceive it, how we understand it. And that is the very, the very great dilemma we face now with, excuse me, That is the very great dilemma that we face now in religion and politics and many other things. We have separated ourselves entirely from the original point of the parable, of the metaphor. And we've applied... Um, first of all, we've applied our physical and low-leveled understanding of the symbology within the metaphor 
of today, of the present moment, to uh, what we're reading, right? And so automatically we're starting off on the wrong foot. We're just getting into this thing all wrong. What we have to do, a lot of people want to go back to read, oh, well, what was a shepherd? What was the Jewish culture? But you don't have to do that. You don't have to read Greek. You don't have to read Hebrew. You don't have to get a history lesson, though they can help. I'm not denigrating the value of these things, but you don't need them. What you need to do is tune in to a certain level of thinking that is not found in reason. Uh, it's more emotional. It is the intuition. Now, in order for us to understand how the intuition plays a role in symbology, we have to analyze metaphor in the very same way that we would analyze a dream. Because though dreams may have the perception of reality, we know that often very unrealistic things occur within them. But the, the interpretation for that dream is not found in your outward experience. In fact, they're often not logically concluded at all. Now, there are symbols which represent physical truths. Physical, and when I say physical, I mean um, things of an emotional state. The way we feel about our physical condition, I guess is the best way that I could word that. So when we approach a metaphor, we have to begin to understand what those symbols mean to us. Because this is the thing. On a higher plane, the objective truth is not objectively interpreted. Interpreted, excuse me. <laughs> the objective truth is not objectively interpreted, but it's interpreted relatively. So, like Peter, on the day of Pentecost, and he stood up to speak to the crowd, and everyone heard in their own language, because that is how the Spirit works. The Spirit, the intuition, the higher self, that is capable of perceiving the truths buried in symbol and metaphor, speaks to us in a language extraordinarily unique to the individual. And so when we separate ourselves from that perspective, or that individual interpretation, what's actually occurring is we're separating ourselves from the objective truth that's found in the symbology and in the metaphor. So what we have to do Well, it's a tricky situation. Um, it's not so easy as it sounds, obviously. One can't just start thinking differently, right? It's a trained process. And how do we do that? Well, it first requires us to push ourselves out of our um, comfort zone, out of the boundaries of our experience. And this is why psychedelics are so beneficial to this process because in a flash, in a moment, you're separated. 
You know, you go to a different level of thinking, a different level of perspective. And in an instant, you come back and all of a sudden, you think differently. You perceive things differently. You look at things from a higher perspective. It's like looking down on the city rather than walking on the streets. You see the straight lines. You see the inlaid truth behind the perspective. And what you begin to see is that everything around us, everything that we experience and perceive is in fact symbol and it all adds up to a metaphor. That metaphor, I cannot say for you because if I were to say it with my words, it wouldn't be real. It would only be another religious or conceptual or idea, ideologic stance. And all that does is solidify something that is constantly in flux, which is to eradicate the ability to understand it objectionally, right? So what we know is that we exist in flux. We exist in a state of suspension between the physical and the vibrational is the best way if we think of it in terms of physics, right? So it used to be referred to as the wavicle, right? But we know that pure energy is both, exists both in a point, but is simultaneously in flux. Much like our thoughts, our consciousness, right? Our mind is never exactly pinned down. It is never in a constant state unless we enter into flow, right? So when we enter to, into flow, energy can maintain a frequency or vibration, uh, or if we're thinking of it in terms of thought or mind, we can maintain a constant while in motion. Newtonian physics, right? An object in motion stays in motion, right? A body at rest stays at rest, unless acted upon by an outward force. Well, we took that quite literally, but the truth, we can still deduce the truth from Newtonian physics, although Einstein greatly reduced the dependability. But the truth that we can deduce from it is what I just spoke of. It's um, the laws of motion so they take it a step too far in the literal interpretation. They say, because what I just discussed, essentially, the wavicle, right? So energy exists simultaneously as a particle and a wave. And so they throw out Newtonian physics because um, it is always in motion. Energy, everything, is actually constantly in motion and it's vibrating. But if we learn to balance that out, that perspective... We don't take it so literal then we can understand that energy can maintain a constant when in motion right which energy and this gets me to my point and why you understand what i'm saying about 
Newtonian physics, is that energy is in constant motion, right? So it is constantly maintained. And so you can tap into the objective reality of pure energy. Now this is where we take it a step further. How does that energy become aware? How does it become conscious? This is where Einstein's theory comes into play because the awareness flows from the relativity. The awareness that the energy possesses is directly tied to its experience of that which surrounds it. So, there is a part of understanding metaphor and symbology that requires one to look inward. But the culmination of an inward and introspective gaze, so to speak, is an outward look, an outward perspective, one that exists, one that proves itself relative in that it is sustained, it is made constant by the manner in which it interacts with the energy around it. So, the issues that we face today are in this, that we seem to pick one or the other. But they have to occur simultaneously. In order for you to maintain a state of being or to enter into the manifestation of that objective reality of the energy that we call spirit or soul to tap into what is our eternal and godlike quality, we must remain in motion. When we are not in motion, what we experience is anxiety. And that anxiety is because the energy is um, in flux. Now, what does it mean for energy to be in flux? Now, energy is in constant motion, right? And the way that it plays with the energy around it determines its state, uh, its quality, its uh, essence, if you will, right? So, a simple way of understanding this is knowing that the day is accompanied by the night because without one or the other, neither would truly be what, we, what they are as we know them, right? The day implies the night and the night implies the day. Opposites are essentially um, where the spectrum crosses paths but does not unite, so to speak. They do not merge at this intersection. One goes under and the other goes over. Think of it like a spiral, a leveled spiral, right? 
um, much like uh, the canopies in the rainforest, right? Now, this is how we move through the levels of, of thought, right? We go around these same concepts, but uh, much like a screw being drilled into the wood, we go deeper with every spin, right? I don't know if this is making sense to the people listening to this, and maybe this is just for my own ears. I, you know, I, I can never tell when I first start speaking and talking about these things. But the point of it is this. What we are, the only way that we can truly comprehend the eternal quality of the self is in outward action. It's in the way that we interact with like energy. All things are made up of pure energy and they exist at different vibrational frequencies. So you will experience a sort of community with humans that you simply won't experience with the animal, the tree, um, the bird, you know, whatever it may be, water, the elements. This is not to say that interactions with these things cannot be pleasurable, desirable, or even um, of an enlightening nature. It's, it's certainly not to say any of that. It's simply to say that the level at which you interact with same energy meets next to zero resistance, right? So water flows through water and becomes one with whatever body it enters, whereas oil, it may be in the water. It may be a little bit of water in that it uh, possesses the same liquid quality. However, it does not mix with the water. So, in comprehending the deeper truths, the symbols that surround us, it's not so much a matter of definition as it is a matter of interaction. How do you interact with the symbology? How do you interact with the metaphor? And how does it interact with you? So we'll take a metaphor and we'll use it to deduce something because we one of our great downfalls is our incessant need for closure. However, closure is not reality. Closure is not something that we actually find. Closure is non-existent, but we create it. And this is where we make a great mistake because the metaphors and the symbols that we experience are undefinable, uh, what I like to call ineffable. Um, and I would like to use the concept of clothing, male and female clothing, to discuss this sort of idea, right? So, take the dress, for instance. It is, in every way, representative in our minds and our culture um, 
representative of female, the feminine, right? But innately, the dress does not possess any feminine quality or attribute. It receives this essence by the way that it interacts with the things around it. Now, I understand that this is an inanimate object. I understand that it is not conscious. But for the sake of the discussion, bear with me. So, what happens? What happens when the dress interacts with something that seems to be the antithesis of its representation. So for instance, when a man puts on a dress, what's occurring? Well, it scares people, why? Because what's, a, what's occurring is what we call the shattering of an illusion. What you find, <laughs> uh, let, me, let me start with this, okay? What can happen will happen. What does mix, can mix. So, the mere fact that a man can put on a dress is the proof that we need to shatter the illusion of the feminine essence of this article of clothing. And it's the same with symbols and metaphor. The extent to which you can interact with the symbol and the metaphor is the extent to which it can be comprehended. And so, you need only the person that you are now in this very moment, your own life experiences, to deduce the higher truths found in any and every metaphor. You don't need linguistic interpretations, you don't need uh, translations, you don't need any of that. Now, that is not to say that there are times when that every translation or every metaphor uh, crosses cultures, cultures in the same manner, because they don't always. Um, but once again, for the sake of this discussion, I ask that you bear with me on this. So, back to the dress, right? We believe that the dress possesses an ineffable quality of a feminine persuasion, right? The designation of feminine. But when the man puts on the dress, this shatters that illusion, because why? We see that men are capable of donning this garment. And this is where it gets tricky, right? The illusion that I'm referring to is one of the lower level, the lower logic. What I would refer to in this scenario as biology. We believe that because a man, if a man puts on a dress, his biology is altered, which is simply not true. It's completely false. There is zero truth in that statement at all. We believe it changes his charge in his attractiveness, that it makes him a homosexual, right? Or a pervert or whatever you want to label it. 
Uh, not to say that homos are perverts. I'm not saying that. You get what I mean. Don't twist my words. <clears throat> so, what is it that we're learning in this scenario then? What is occurring with this symbol? What's happening? What occurs is the biology is altered in its interaction. It is no longer affirmed, right? It is no longer reinforced by the perception occurring around it, the interaction in the clothing. What happens is the masculine now is mixing and interacting with the feminine. So what does this mean? What am I getting at? That interaction gives us a higher perspective, a better understanding. For instance, the little boy that dresses as a cowboy. Why does he dress as a cowboy? Because he saw a TV show about John Wayne and now he wants to be John Wayne. These metaphors and symbols are very much the same. We interact with a symbol that is not of our culture, is not of our comprehension, and when others interact with it or display it or don it, it scares us because it shatters the lower level logic by which we manufacture our perceptions. When in actuality, all that's occurring is an interaction. Now when you interact with a metaphor or a symbol, you will find that you either mix with it, like water, it takes to you, molds to you, you become one with it, or it becomes oil in your thoughts. It doesn't mix. You don't comprehend. You're not getting the higher truths. And this is the beauty of symbology and metaphor is that it's in everything. And so for us to understand our higher selves, we must interact with as much as we can until we find that symbol and that metaphor that we become one with, that we mesh with, that we take on, right? And so what we're finding, especially in this case of the dress and the man and the gender, is that many males are beginning to wake up to this sort of feminine aspect of who they are. They encounter this symbol and they find that it's not quite the oil to the water that they had suspected. This is shattering to our low level of logic. The monkey mind, as I like to call it. But it is, in fact, enlightenment. How? How is it enlightening? Because it uncovers a reality. It uncovers this reality. 
that you were more of something than you thought. That the differences you perceived were not so different after all. What you begin to find in the more experiences in which you endeavor is that there is in fact no separation. The more you delve into metaphor, the more you find yourself. <laughs> the more you dive into symbology, the more you un uncover the experience of the symbology and the metaphor, the more strengthened your perception of self becomes. Now, you're always going to encounter certain things that just don't vibe with you, right? But we exist now at a level in which nearly every experience that we have, there are so many angles that you can find a style or a manner in which any interaction or experience does in fact mesh with you. So let's say back to the man in the dress, right? The man in the dress touches his feminine side. Well, perhaps you feel that same way with the relation you have with your daughter. It enlightens you to the feminine attributes within yourself. It softens you up. Perhaps you have an excellent relationship with your mother and it does the same thing. Maybe your wife. The point is that there are many roads. And if there is one objective truth, then there can only be one objective truth. And so what we need to awaken to and perceive is not all of these low-hanging objective realities that exist on one plane of perception or another, but the one reality, the one perception out of which all perceptions flow. If you start with a sheet of paper, you can fold it into many different things, the art of origami, but it all flows out of the same sheet of paper. So in essence, what spirituality is, is the unfolding of the mental origami, the origami of perception, the origami of the cosmos. You are returning the swan back to the rectangular 8x10 sheet of white paper. It's original form. And this is the art of the mystic, of the Eastern thinker, of the Zen master, the Buddhist, they are returning to the most simple version. And this is how they find peace. They unfold what has been folded. And we find the fabric of the experience, the fabric of these layered 
truths. Now, how do we reel this back into symbol and metaphor? Well, if the universe hands you a folded paper swan, the only way for you to return it to its original shape in that piece of paper is to engage with it. If you sit it on the table and stare at it, it will not go back. And so what we find, now this is a reference back to what I mentioned earlier about a constant state of being, a constant essence is in motion when we engage what is that constant state? What is that constant motion? And what you'll find is that it is change. Energy in constant motion is creative. It produces, if nothing else, experience. And so we find that interaction, change, flow, forward progress is the first layer of the objective truth. Why? Because it is the vehicle by which we experience the objective truth, the unfolded origami swan. And through a creation of experience, we create the relative awareness, the interaction of one energy and another. And this is what we find, that the same energy lives and creates everything. And that energy, upon our first encounter, is the energy of change, the outward flow. Now, that is the first encounter with the objective truth, the one by which all others are made. It first comes on the seat of change, by the vehicle of change. And that is where I'm going to stop this talk for now because the next discussion will be um, un uncovering that layer. What does change become? Um, and that will relate to creation and how creation actually uncovers. Uh, we think of creation as a, um, as a multiplicity, right? A stacking, a block on a block. We take one block, we make another block, and we stack them. But that is actually not what true change and true creativity is. True creativity, true change is perpetuality, it is a constant flow forward of the same. And it's actually that same energy interacting with other same energies that creates and becomes the catalyst for separation and difference, like the spark or the smoke that emerges from the flame. When flint and flint are struck together, sparks 
fly, trees, you, me, cars, everything is the spark. The spark that grew into a flame. That flame is what casts the shadow. That flame is a projection and it finds its origination in that perpetual forward motion of one energy. I hope that this has made sense. I hope that uh, I'm being clear and I hope that we're able to ultimately understand these perceptions and higher truths so that um, we can actually, through change and creativity, all end up on the same page and we can make the world that we want to see. Um, that is all for today. Tomorrow we will continue this discussion um, and we will pick up with this thought, the perpetual forward and interactive energy that creates is identified firstly as change and change is ultimately creativity. Thank you. This has been another episode of Sit at My Table. As always, thank you for listening. You can find me at www.facebook.com backslash DC Wilson Speaks at DC Wilson Speaks on Instagram. As always, thank you for sitting at my table.